Article 13 of the Number and Use of the Sacraments. In the 13th article, the adversaries approve our statement that the sacraments are not only marks of profession among men, as some imagine, but that they are rather signs and testimonies of God's will toward us, through which God moves hearts to believe. But here, they bid us also count seven sacraments. We hold that it should be maintained that the matters and ceremonies instituted in the Scriptures, whatever the number, be not neglected. Neither do we believe it to be of any consequence, though, for the purpose of teaching. Different people reckon differently, provided they still preserve aright the matters handed down in Scripture. Neither have the ancients reckoned in the same manner. If we call sacraments rites which have the command of God and to which the promise of grace has been added, it is easy to decide what are properly sacraments. For rites instituted by men will not in this way be sacraments properly so called. For it does not belong to human authority to promise grace. Therefore, signs instituted without God's command are not sure signs of grace, even though they perhaps instruct the rude or admonish as to something. Therefore, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution, which is the sacrament of repentance, are truly sacraments. For these rites have God's command and the promise of grace, which is peculiar to the New Testament. For when we are baptized, when we eat the Lord's body, when we are absolved, our hearts must be firmly assured that God truly forgives us for Christ's sake. And God at the same time, by the word and by the right, moves hearts to believe and conceive faith, just as Paul says Romans 10.17, Faith cometh by hearing. But just as the word enters the ear in order to strike our heart, so the right itself strikes the eye in order to move the heart. The effect of the word and of the right is the same, as it has been well said by Augustine that a sacrament is a visible word, because the right is received by the eyes and is, as it were, a picture of the word, signifying the same thing as the word. Therefore, the effect of both is the same. Confirmation and extreme unction are rites received from the fathers which not even the church requires as necessary to salvation because they do not have God's command. Therefore, it is not useless to distinguish these rites from the former, which have God's express command and a clear promise of grace. The adversaries understand priesthood not of the ministry of the word and administering sacraments to others, but they understand it as referring to sacrifice, as though in the New Testament there ought to be a priesthood like the Levitical, to sacrifice for the people and merit the remission of sins for others. We teach that the sacrifice of Christ dying on the cross has been sufficient for the sins of the whole world, and that there is no need besides of other sacrifices, as though this were not sufficient for our sins. Men accordingly are justified, not because of any other sacrifices, but because of this one sacrifice of Christ, if they believe that they have been redeemed by this sacrifice. They are accordingly called priests not in order to make any sacrifices for the people as in the law, so that by these they may merit the remission of sins for the people, 
but they are called to teach the gospel and administer the sacraments to the people. Nor do we have another priesthood like the Levitical, as the epistle to the Hebrews sufficiently teaches. But if ordination be understood as applying to the ministry of the word, we are not unwilling to call ordination a sacrament. For the ministry of the word has God's command and glorious promises, Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Likewise, Isaiah 55.11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. If ordination be understood in this way, neither will we refuse to call the imposition of hands a sacrament. For the church has the command to appoint ministers, which should be most pleasing to us, because we know that God approves this ministry and is present in the ministry. And it is of advantage, so far as can be done, to adorn the ministry of the word with every kind of praise against fanatical men, who dream that the Holy Ghost is not given through the word, but because of certain preparations of their own, if they sit unoccupied and silent in obscure places, waiting for illumination, as the enthusiasts formerly taught, and as the Anabaptists now teach. Matrimony was not first instituted in the New Testament, but in the beginning, immediately on the creation of the human race. It has, moreover, God's command. It also has promises, not indeed properly pertaining to the New Testament, but rather pertaining to the bodily life. Wherefore, if anyone should wish to call it a sacrament, he ought still to distinguish it from those preceding ones, which are properly signs of the New Testament and testimonies of grace and the remission of sins. But if marriage will have the name of sacrament for the reason that it has God's command, other states or offices also which have God's command may be called sacraments, as, for example, the magistracy. Lastly, if among the sacraments all things ought to be numbered which have God's command and to which promises have been added, why do we not add prayer, which most truly can be called a sacrament? For it has both God's command and very many promises. And if placed among the sacraments, as though in a more eminent place it would invite men to pray, Alms could also be reckoned here, and likewise afflictions, which are even themselves signs to which God has added promises. But let us omit these things, for no prudent man will strive greatly concerning the number or the term, if only those objects still be retained which have God's command and promises. It is still more needful to understand how the sacraments are to be used. Here we condemn the whole crowd of scholastic doctors who teach that the sacraments confer grace ex opera operato without a good disposition on the, on the part of the one using them, provided he do not place a hindrance in the way. This is absolutely a Jewish opinion to hold that we are justified by a ceremony without a good disposition of the heart, that is, without faith. And yet, this impious and pernicious opinion is taught 
with great authority throughout the entire realm of the Pope. Paul contradicts this and denies, Romans 4.9, that Abraham was justified by circumcision, but asserts that circumcision was a sign presented for exercising faith. Thus we teach that in the use of the sacraments faith ought to be added, which should believe these promises and receive the promised things there offered in the sacrament. And the reason is plain and thoroughly grounded. The promise is useless unless it is received by faith. But the sacraments are the signs of the promises. Therefore, in the use of the sacraments, faith ought to be added, so that if anyone use the Lord's Supper, he use it thus. Because this is a sacrament of the New Testament, as Christ clearly says, he ought for this reason to be confident that what is promised in the New Testament, namely the free remission of sins, is offered him. And let him receive this by faith, let him comfort his alarmed conscience, and know that these testimonies are not fallacious, but as sure as though God by a new miracle would declare from heaven that it was his will to grant forgiveness. But of what advantage would these miracles and promises be to an unbeliever? And here we speak of special faith which believes the present promise, not only that which in general believes that God exists, but which believes that the remission of sins is offered. This use of the sacrament consoles godly and alarmed minds. Moreover, no one can express in words what abuses in the church this fanatical opinion concerning the opus operatum without a good disposition on the part of the one using the sacraments has produced. Hence, the infinite profanation of the masses but of this we shall speak below. Neither can a single letter be produced from the old writers, which in this matter favors the scholastics. Yea, Augustine says the contrary, that the faith of the sacrament, and not the sacrament, justifies. And the declaration of Paul is well known, Romans 10.10, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Article 21 of the invocation of saints. The twenty-first article they absolutely condemn because we do not require the invocation of saints, nor on any topic do they speak more eloquently and with more prolixity. Nevertheless, they do not affect anything else than that the saints should be honored, likewise that the saints who live pray for others, as though, indeed, the invocation of dead saints were on that account necessary. They cite Cyprian because he asked Cornelius, while yet alive, to pray for his brothers when departing. By this example they prove the invocation of the dead. They quote also Jerome against Vigilantius. On this field, they say, eleven hundred years ago Jerome overcame Vigilantius. Thus the adversaries triumph as though the war were already ended. Nor do those asses see that in Jerome against Vigilantius there is not a syllable concerning invocation. He speaks concerning honors for the saints, not concerning invocation. Neither have the rest of the ancient writers before Gregory made mention of invocation. Certainly this invocation with these opinions which the adversaries now teach concerning the application of merits 
has not the testimonies of the ancient writers. Our confession approves honors to the saints, for here a threefold honor is to be approved. The first is thanksgiving, for we ought to give thanks to God because he has shown examples of mercy, because he has shown that he wishes to save men, because he has given teachers or other gifts to the church. And these gifts, as they are the greatest, should be amplified, and the saints themselves should be praised, who have faithfully used these gifts, just as Christ praises faithful businessmen. Matthew 25, 21, 23. The second service is the strengthening of our faith. When we see the denial forgiven Peter, we are also encouraged to believe the more that grace truly superabounds over sin. The third honor is the imitation, first of faith, then of the other virtues, which everyone should imitate according to his calling. These true honors the adversaries do not require. They dispute only concerning invocation, which, even though it would have no danger, nevertheless, is not necessary. Besides, we also grant that the angels pray for us, for there is a testimony in Zechariah 1.12 where an angel prays, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem? Although concerning the saints we concede that just as when alive they pray for the church universal in general, albeit no testimony concerning the praying of the dead is extant in the scriptures, except the dream taken from the second book of Maccabees 15.14. Moreover, even supposing that the, that the saints pray for the church ever so much, yet it does not follow that they are to be invoked. Although our confession affirms only this, that Scripture does not teach the invocation of the saints, or that we are to ask the saints for aid. But since neither a command nor a promise nor an example can be produced from the Scriptures concerning the invocation of saints, it follows that conscience can have nothing concerning this, this invocation that is certain. And since prayer ought to be made from faith, how do we know that God approves this invocation? Whence do we know without the testimony of Scripture that the saints perceive the prayers of each one? Some plainly ascribe divinity to the saints, namely, that they discern the silent thoughts of the minds in us. They dispute concerning morning and evening knowledge, perhaps because they doubt whether they hear us in the morning or the evening. They invent these things not in order to treat the saints with honor, but to defend lucrative services. Nothing can be produced by the adversaries against the reasoning that, since invocation does not have a testimony from God's word, it cannot be affirmed that the saints understand our invocation, or even if they understand it, that God approves it. Therefore, the adversaries ought not to force us to an uncertain matter, because, prayer, because a prayer without faith is not prayer. For when they cite the example of the church, it is evident that this is a new custom in the church. For although the old prayers make mention of the saints, yet they do not invoke the saints. Although also this new invocation of, in the church is dissimilar to the invocation of individuals. Again, the adversaries not only require invocation in the worship of saints, but also apply the merits of the saints to others, and make of the saints not only intercessors, but also propitiators. This is in no way to be endured, 
For here the honor belonging only to Christ is altogether transferred to the saints. For they make them mediators and propitiators, and although they make a distinction between mediators of intercession and mediators of redemption, yet they they plainly make of the saints mediators of redemption. But even that they are mediators of intercession, they declare without the testimony of Scripture, be it said ever so reverently, nevertheless obscures Christ's office and transfers the confidence of mercy due Christ to the saints. For men imagine that Christ is more severe and the saints more easily appeased, and they trust rather to the mercy of the saints than to the mercy of Christ. And fleeing from Christ, they seek the saints. Thus they actually make of them mediators of redemption. Therefore we shall show that they truly make of the saints not only intercessors but propitiators, that is, mediators of redemption. Here we do not as yet recite the abuses of the common people. We are still speaking of the opinions of the doctors. As regards the rest, even the inexperienced can judge. In a propitiator these two things concur. In the first place, there ought to be a word from God from which we may certainly know that God wishes to pity and hearken to those calling upon him through this propitiator. There is such a promise concerning Christ, John 16.23, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Concerning the saints, there is no such promise. Therefore, consciences cannot be firmly confident that by the invocation of saints we are heard. This invocation, therefore, is not made from faith. Then we have also the command to call upon Christ, according to Matthew 11.28, Come unto me, all ye that labor, etc., which certainly is said also to us. And Isaiah says 11.10, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign to the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek. And Psalm 45.12, Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. And Psalm 72.11.15, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. And shortly after, prayer also shall be made for him continually. And in John 5.23, Christ says that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2.16-17 says, Praying, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, comfort your hearts and establish you. But concerning the invocation of saints, what commandment, what example can the adversaries produce from the Scriptures? The second matter in a propitiator is that his merits have been presented as those which make satisfaction for others, which are bestowed by divine imputation on others, in order that through these, just as, by merit, just as by their own merits, they may be accounted righteous. As when any friend pays a debt for a friend, the debtor is freed by the merit of another, as though it were by his own. Thus the merits of Christ are bestowed upon us, in order that when we believe in him, we may be accounted righteous by our confidence in Christ's merits, as though we had merits of our own. And from both, namely from the promise and the bestowment of merits, confidence in mercy arises. Such confidence in the divine promise and likewise in the merits of Christ ought to be brought forward when we pray. 
For we ought to be truly confident that both for Christ's sake we are heard, and that by his merits we have a reconciled Father. Here the adversaries first bid us invoke the saints, although they have neither God's promise nor a command, nor an example from Scripture. And yet, they cause greater confidence in the mercy of saints to be conceived than in that of Christ, although Christ bade us come to him and not to the saints. Secondly, they apply the merits of the saints just as the merits of Christ to others. They bid us trust in the merits of the saints as though we were accounted righteous on account of the merits of the saints, in like manner as we are accounted righteous by the merits of Christ. Here, we fabricate nothing. In indulgences, they say that they apply the merits of the saints. And Gabriel, the interpreter of the canon and the mass, confidently declares, according to the order instituted by God, we should betake ourselves to the aid of the saints, in order that we may be saved by their merits and vows. These are the words of Gabriel. And nevertheless, in the books and sermons of the adversary, still more absurd things are read here and there. What is it to make propitiators if this is not? They are altogether made equal to Christ if we must trust that we are saved by their merits. But where has this arrangement, to which he refers when he says that we ought to resort to the aid of saints, been instituted by God? Let him produce an example or command from the Scriptures. Perhaps they derive this arrangement from the courts of kings, where friends must be employed as intercessors. But if a king has appointed a certain intercessor, he will not desire that cases be brought to him through others. Thus, since Christ has been appointed intercessor and high priest, why do we seek others? Here and there this form of absolution is used. The passion of our Lord Jesus Christ the merits of the most blessed Virgin Mary and of all the saints, be to thee for the remission of sins. Here the absolution is pronounced on the supposition that we are reconciled and accounted righteous not only by the merits of Christ, but also by the merits of the other saints. Some of us have seen a doctor of theology dying, for consoling whom a certain theologian, a monk, was employed he pressed on the dying man nothing but this prayer. Mother of grace, protect us from the enemy, receive us in the hour of death. Granting that the Blessed Mary prays for the church, does she receive souls in death? Does she conquer death? Does she quicken? What does Christ do if the Blessed Mary does these things? Although she is most worthy of the most ample honors, Nevertheless, she does not wish to be made equal to Christ, but rather wishes us to consider and follow her example. But the subject itself declares that in public opinion, the Blessed Virgin has succeeded altogether to the place of Christ. Men have invoked her, have trusted in her mercy, through her have desired to appease Christ, as though he were not a propitiator but only a dreadful judge and avenger. We believe, however, that we must not trust that the merits of the saints are applied to us, that on account of these God is reconciled to us or accounts us just or saves us. For we obtain remission of sins only by the merits of Christ when we believe in him. Of the other saints it has been said, 1 Corinthians 3.8, 
Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. That is, they cannot mutually bestow their own merits, the one upon the other, as the monks sell the merits of their orders. Even Hilary says of the foolish virgins, And the foolish virgins could not go forth with their lamps extinguished. They besought those who were prudent to lend them oil, to whom they replied that they could not give it, because peradventure there might not be enough for all, that is, no one can be aided by the works and merits of another, because it is necessary for everyone to buy oil for his own lamp. Since, therefore, the adversaries teach us to place confidence in the invocation of saints, although they have neither the word of God nor the example of Scripture, since they apply the merits of the saints on behalf of others, not otherwise than they apply the merits of Christ, and transfer the honor belonging only to Christ to the saints, we can receive neither their opinions concerning the worship of the saints, nor the practice of invocation. For we know that confidence is to be placed in the intercession of Christ, because this alone has God's promise. We know that the merits of Christ alone are a propitiation for us. On account of the merits of Christ, we are accounted righteous when we believe in him. As the text says, Romans 9.33, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be confounded. Neither are we to trust that we are accounted righteous by the merits of the Blessed Virgin or of the other saints. With the learned, this error also prevails, namely, that to each saint a particular administration has been committed, that Anna bestows riches, Sebastian keeps off pestilence, Valentine heals epilepsy, George protects horsemen. These opinions have clearly sprung from heathen examples. For thus among the Romans, Juno was thought to enrich, Febris to keep off fever, Castor and Pollux to protect horsemen, etc. Even though we should imagine that the invocation of saints were taught with the greatest prudence, yet the example is most dangerous. Why is it necessary to defend it? when it has no command or testimony from God's word. Aye, it has not even the testimony of the ancient writers. First because, as I have said above, when other mediators are sought in addition to Christ, and confidence is put in, in others, the entire knowledge of Christ is suppressed. The subject shows this. In the beginning, mention of the saints seems to have been admitted with a design that is endurable, as in the ancient prayers. Afterwards, invocation followed, and abuses that are more prodi- that are prodigious and more than heathenish followed invocation. From invocation, the next step was to images. These also were worshipped, and a virtue was supposed to exist in these, just as magicians imagine that a virtue exists in images of the heavenly bodies carved at a, at a particular time. In a certain monastery, we have seen a statue of the Blessed Virgin which moved automatically by a trick, so as to seem either to turn away from or nod to those making request. Still, the fabulous stories concerning the saints, which are publicly taught with great authority, surpass the marvelous tales of the statues and pictures. Barbara, against her torments, asks for the reward that no one who would invoke her should die without the Eucharist. Another, standing on one foot, recited daily the whole psaltery. Some wise men painted Christophorus. 
in order by the allegory to signify that there ought to be great strength of mind in those who would bear Christ. Then the foolish monks taught among the people that they ought to invoke Christophorus, as though such a polyphemus had once existed. And although the saints performed very great deeds, either useful to the state or affording private examples, the remembrance of which would conduce much both toward strengthening faith and toward following their example in the administration of affairs, no one has searched for these from true narratives. Yet indeed it is of advantage to hear how holy men administered governments, what calamities, what dangers they underwent, how holy men were of aid to kings in great dangers, how they taught the gospel, what encounters they had with heretics. Examples of mercy are also in service, as when we see the denial forgiven Peter, when we see Cyprian forgiven for, ha for having been a magician, when we see Augustine having experienced the power of faith in sickness, steadily affirming that God truly hears the prayers of believers. It was profitable that such examples as these, which contain admonitions for either faith or fear, or the administration of the state, be recited. But certain triflers, endowed with no knowledge either of faith or for governing states, have invented stories in imitation of poems, in which there are nothing but superstitious examples concerning certain prayers, certain fastings, and certain additions of service for bringing in gain. Such are the miracles that have been invented concerning rosaries and similar ceremonies. Nor is there need here to recite examples, for the legends, as they call them, and the mirrors of examples and the rosaries, in which there are many, very many things not unlike the true narratives of Lucian, are extant. The bishops, theologians, and monks applaud these monstrous and wicked stories because they aid them to their daily bread. They do not tolerate us, who, in order that the honor and office of Christ may be more conspicuous, do not require the invocation of saints and censure the abuses in the worship of saints. And although all good men everywhere in the correction of these abuses greatly long for either the authority of the bishops or the diligence of the preachers, nevertheless our adversaries in the confutation altogether pass over vices that are even manifest as though they wish by the reception of the confutation to compel us to approve even the most notorious abuses. Thus, the confutation has been deceitfully written, not only on this topic, but almost everywhere. There is no passage in which they make a distinction between the manifest abuses and their dogmas. And nevertheless, if there are any of sounder mind among them, they confess that many false opinions inhere in the doctrine of the scholastics and the canonists, and besides that in such ignorance and negligence of the pastors, many abuses crept into the church. For Luther was not the first to complain of public abuses. Many learned and excellent men before these times deplored the abuses of the Mass, confidence in monastic observances, services to the saints intended to yield a revenue, the confusion of the doctrine concerning repentance, which ought to be as clear and plain in the church as possible. We ourselves have heard that excellent theologians desire moderation in the, in the scholastic doctrine, which contains much more for philosophical quarrels than for piety.
And nevertheless, among these, the older ones are generally nearer Scripture than are the more recent. Thus their theology degenerated more and more. Neither had many good men, who from the very first began to be friendly to Luther, any other reason than that they saw that he was freeing the minds of men from these labyrinths of most confused and infinite discussions which exist among the scholastic theologians and canonists, and was teaching things profitable for godliness. The adversaries, therefore, have not acted candidly in passing over the abuses when they wished us to assent to the confutation. And if they wish to care for the interests of the Church, especially on that topic at this occasion, they ought to exhort our most excellent Emperor to take measures for the correction of abuses. As we observe plainly enough that he is the most desirous of healing and well-establishing the Church, but the adversaries do not act so as to aid the most honorable and holy will of the emperor, but so as in every way to crush us. Many signs show that they have little anxiety concerning the state of the church. They take no pains that there should be among the people a summary of the dogmas of the church. They defend manifest abuses by new and unusual cruelty. They allow no suitable teachers in the churches. Good men can easily judge whither these things tend. But in this way they have no regard to the interest either of their own authority or of the church. For after the good teachers have been killed and sound doctrine suppressed, fanatical spirits will rise up, whom the adversaries will not be able to restrain, who both will disturb the church with godless dogmas and will overthrow the entire ecclesiastical government which we are very greatly desirous of maintaining. Therefore, most excellent Emperor Charles, for the sake of the glory of Christ, which we have no doubt that you desire to praise and magnify, we beseech you not to assent to the violent counsels of our adversaries, but to seek other honorable ways of so establishing harmony that godly consciences are not burdened, that no cruelty is exercised against innocent men, as we have hitherto seen, and that sound doctrine is not suppressed in the church. To God most of all you owe the duty to maintain sound doctrine and hand it down to posterity, and to defend those who teach what is right. For God demands this when he honors kings with his own name and calls them gods, saying, Psalm 82, 6, I have said ye are gods, namely, that they should attend to the preservation and propagation of divine things, that is, the gospel of Christ on the earth, and as the vicars of God, should defend the life and safety of the innocent. Article 22. Of Both Kinds in the Lord's Supper. It cannot be doubted that it is godly and in accordance with the institution of Christ and the words of Paul to use both parts in the Lord's Supper. For Christ instituted both parts and instituted them not for a part of the church, but for the entire church. For not only the presbyters, but the entire church uses the sacrament by the authority of Christ, and not by human authority. And this, we suppose, the adversaries acknowledge. Now if Christ has instituted it for the entire church, why is one kind denied to a part of the church? Why is the use of the other kind prohibited? Why is the ordinance of Christ changed, especially 
when he himself calls it his testament. But if it is not allowable to annul man's testament, much less will it be allowable to annul the testament of Christ. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11.23, that he had received of the Lord that which he delivered. But he had delivered the use of both kinds, as the text 1 Corinthians 11 clearly shows. This do, in remembrance of me, he says first concerning his body. Afterwards, he repeats the same words concerning the cup, the blood of Christ. And then, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Here he names both. These are the words of him who has instituted the sacrament. And indeed, he says before, that those who will use the Lord's Supper should use both. It is evident, therefore, that the sacrament was instituted for the entire church, and the custom still remains in the Greek churches, and also once obtained in the Latin churches, as Cyprian and Jerome testify. For thus Jerome says on Zephaniah, the priests who administer the Eucharist and distribute the Lord's blood to the people, etc., the Council of Toledo gives the same testimony. Nor would it be difficult to accumulate a great multitude of testimonies. Here we exaggerate nothing, but leave the prudent reader to, de to determine what should be held concerning the divine ordinance. The adversaries in the confutation do not endeavor to excuse the church to which one part of the sacrament has been denied. This would have been becoming to good and religious men. For a strong reason for excusing the church and instructing consciences to whom only a part of the sacrament could be granted should have been sought. Now these very men maintain that it is right to prohibit the other part and forbid that the use of both parts be allowed. First, they imagine that in the beginning of the church it was the custom at some places that only one part was administered. Nevertheless, they are not able to produce any ancient example of this matter. But they cite the passages in which mention is made of bread, as in Luke 24, 35, where it is written that the disciples recognize Christ in the breaking of bread. They quote also other passages, Acts 2, 42, 46, 27, concerning the breaking of bread. But although we do not greatly oppose if some receive these passages as referring to the sacrament, yet it does not follow that one part only was given, because, according to the ordinary usage of language, by the naming of one part, the other is also signified. They also refer to lay communion, which was not the use of only one kind, but of both. And whenever priests are commanded to use lay communion, it is meant that they have been removed from the ministry of consecration. Neither are the adversaries ignorant of this, but they abuse the ignorance of the unlearned, who, when they hear of lay communion, immediately dream the custom of our time, by which only a part of the sacrament is given to the layman. And consider their impudence. Gabriel recounts, among other reasons, why both parts are not given that a distinction should be made between laymen and presbyters. And it is credible that the chief reason why the prohibition of the one part is defended is this, 
namely that the dignity of the order may be the more highly exalt, exalted by a religious right. To say nothing more severe, this is a human design, and whither this tends can easily be judged. In the confutation they also quote concerning the sons of Eli, that after the loss of the high priesthood, they were to seek the one part pertaining to the priests, 1 Samuel 2.36. The text reads, Every one that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices. German, Lieber, lass mich zu einem Priester teil, that I may eat a piece of bread. Here, they say that the use of one kind was signified. And they add, Thus therefore our layman ought also to be content with one part pertaining to the priests with one kind. The adversaries are clearly trifling when they are transferring the history of the posterity of Eli to the sacrament. The punishment of Eli is there described. Will they also say this, that as a punishment the laymen have been removed from the other part? The sacrament was instituted to console and comfort terrified minds when they believe that the flesh of Christ given for the life of the world is food, when they believe that being joined to Christ they are made alive. But the adversaries argue that laymen are removed from the other part as a punishment. They ought, they say, to be content. This is sufficient for a despot. But, my lords, we may ask the reason, why ought they? The reason must not be asked, but let whatever the theologians say be law. This is a concoction of Eck. For we recognize those vainglorious words which, if we would wish to criticize, there would be no want of language. For you see how great the impudence is. He commands, as a tyrant in the tragedies, whether they wish or not, they must be content. Will the reasons which he cites excuse, in the judgment of God, those who prohibit a part of the sacrament and rage against men using an entire sacrament? If they make the prohibition in order that there should be a distinguishing mark of the order, this very reason ought to move us, not to assent to the adversaries, even though we would be disposed in other respects to comply with their custom. There are other distinguishing marks of the order of priests and of the people, but it is not obscure what design they have for defending this distinction so earnestly. That we may not seem to detract from the true worth of the order, we will not say more concerning this shrewd design. They also allege the danger of spilling and certain similar things, which do not have force sufficient to change the ordinance of Christ. And indeed, if we assume that we are free to use either one part or both, how can the prohibition be defended? Although the church does not assume to itself the liberty to convert the ordinances of Christ into matters of indifference, we indeed excuse the church which has borne the injury, since it could not obtain both parts. But the authors who maintain that the use of the entire sacrament is justly prohibited, and who now not only prohibit but even excommunicate and violently persecute those using an entire sacrament, we do not excuse. 
Let them see to it, how they will give an account to God for their decisions. Neither is it to be judged immediately that the church determines or approves whatever the pontiffs determine, especially since Scripture prophesies concerning the bishops and pastors to effect this, as Ezekiel 7.26 says, the law shall perish from the priest.